This is the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. Today, we're joined by Matt Angle, CEO of Paradromics, one of our portfolio companies. On the show, we talk a bit about the company's recent financing round that we participated in, the challenges of processing neurological data from a 65,000-channel array, and some of the opportunities and timelines around invasive BCI application. One note I'd like to add here is that Matt makes a mention of an eight-year time frame for the initial market for a high-bandwidth brain implant at around the 15.30 to 16-minute mark. In that estimate, Matt is including working through the entire clinical trial and FDA approval process to actually begin selling the device in market. So obviously, there will be significant progress between now and then, and we also talk about some of the more near-term opportunities during the podcast. And with that point of clarification, we bring you Matt Angle from Paradromics. All right, Matt, thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. So to start, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in neurotech, neuroscience in general, and from there, how you started to create paradromics? Well, my interest in neuroscience started out in Nathan Urban's lab at Carnegie Mellon University. I was doing a degree in biochemistry and molecular biology, and I met Nathan, and I was really impressed by him, really impressed by the team around him. And I just started realizing that smartest people that I knew were very interested in the brain and that there was a lot of complexity there and a lot of significance working in that area. And as I started getting kind of sucked into being interested in neuroscience, I was kind of aware that I think I'm more of a tinkerer, more of like an engineer kind of problem solver by nature. And so I tended to be attracted to solving problems for neuroscience rather than investigating purely scientific aims. So like trying to come up with tools that would allow people to ask questions that they couldn't ask before. That interest led me to go to the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg, Germany, and start developing intracellular recording electrodes, which were nanoscopic electrodes that could be inserted through the membrane of a neuron to record signals inside of cells. And so that was my PhD work. And in the process of looking at different ways to make metal microwire electrodes, I started thinking about, well, what if you wanted to make a ton of them? And I started getting interested in the idea of producing really massive scale arrays. And as I was looking at how you can use these microwire electrodes, I was realizing that if you could get really big arrays and sample from a lot of neurons called extracellularly, which is where the electrode sits beside the neuron instead of inside of it, then you could get enough information that you didn't necessarily have to go inside of a neuron, which is much more invasive and much harder engineering feat. And I went on to do a postdoc at Stanford working again, on intracellular technologies and looking at approaches for fabricating really, really small probes that seamlessly integrate into cells. But as I was surrounded by all of the engineering know-how at Stanford, and I started making a lot of friends that were better engineers than I was, I realized that all of the technology was available to try to scale up microwire recording to get huge numbers of cells. And that was a really compelling project because it was ready for translation. It could have immediate impact, not just on the neuroscience community and basic research, but also clinical impact. Because if you can record from tons of neurons at once, you've basically made a way of 
a modem that can take information from the brain and transmit it to a computer or another interface or vice versa. And so that was kind of genesis of paradromics is I started getting very interested in how you would build this. And then as I was plotting that out, I realized that it would be a better project and a better fit for industry than it would be for academia because it was capital intensive feat that would require a lot of engineering that wouldn't necessarily be every job wouldn't necessarily be sexy, but it would come together to make something highly significant. And it's often hard to do that kind of thing in academia. And then also the obvious fact that when we make this happen, it's going to be extremely valuable. And so it's extremely attractive for investors and as a commercial enterprise. Certainly is. And speaking of capital and investors, you had some, we think, very exciting news earlier this week. You closed a $7 million funding round, which we are honored to be a part of, uh, yeah. so <laughs> addressing our inherent biases early in the show, unabashed cheerleaders. But can you tell us a little bit about just how you think about you know, using those funds? You've obviously achieved a lot so far on a limited budget. So now what's the future for Paradromics look like? Yeah, I think a lot of people ask, you know, what are we going to do with the money? And maybe they imagine that a deep tech med device bleeding edge company like Paradromics might look a lot different than another startup. Maybe we have to buy like a million dollar flux capacitor or something like that. But I think the truth is, is that our company looks like every other startup in the sense that we spend money on people and we want to get the best people and we want to grow. And that's really kind of how we can use our resources the best. That makes sense. I think it's important insight just as investors that I think we've come around to, too, which is for any early stage company, no matter what the end product is, you know, the people, the team, the founder is just such an important piece of it. And as companies get older, obviously, they change based on their products. But I think early on, to your point, they're very similar, built in similar ways. Yeah, we've been very fortunate so far in the people that we've been hiring. In fact, I actually, I understand that we have a bit of a reputation now in Stanford and Berkeley as being hard interviewers. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, like I think we're hard asses, I guess. Um, but I'm not apologetic for that because we have an amazing team and we want to just continue raising the bar. You know, we want every person who joins to raise the total talent pool and, and really like have a huge marginal impact. And so far, we've been lucky enough that we can do that. Having a really high bar is important because as we think about BCI and just the promise of the technology, it's so vast, but the challenges are also really vast and you need great people to sort of solve those challenges. So maybe taking a step back, could you give us a state of the union with how you think about where the industry is today and what we can expect over the next couple of years in development of BCIs? Yeah. I think one of the really important distinctions to make when we talk about BCI is that we often paint all sort of recording and stimulation of the brain with one brush. But there are really two camps that are becoming more and more divergent as the technologies proceed. And I would say that invasive interfaces like brain implants would be one camp and another would be non-invasive interfaces. Like, for instance, I, I know that you guys have invested in Neurable, and I've seen a lot of other startups in the non-invasive space like Control Labs and based on EEG or some now looking at near-infrared functional imaging. And I see that these are very complementary fields. On one hand, you have where Paradromics is going, which is it's all about data rate. We're trying to enable applications for people who are paralyzed or for people who are blind, for whom this 
data link is going to be a really integral part of their life. And the more data we can provide them, the more function we provide them. But at the same time, it requires surgical intervention. On the other hand, you have these non-invasive interfaces that are moving in the direction of integrating with other wearables and sort of like Internet of Things. And that that's coming from a different direction. That's saying, look, we're not going to implant them. We're not building a medical device. We're building a consumer device. But how can we squeeze the most functionality out of the technology that we have? I can see that these two camps are going down very parallel paths. I think that delineation is something that's really important that we've kind of thought about, talked a little bit about on the show. And maybe to dive in first into the different mechanisms that are being used right now in the invasive side, as you explained earlier, you use a sort of microwire approach for your solution. But we've also seen for the invasive side, people experimenting with optogenetics. We've heard about these things that sound mythical in some ways, like neural lace and neural dust. Could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to go with the microwire solution for paradromics and maybe what advantages you see there versus some of the other solutions that people are experimenting with right now? Yeah. So one of the early decisions that we made when we were just looking in general at BCI and clinical BCI, a lot of people asked, could you integrate some sort of optogenetic functionality? Could you integrate fibers for delivering light? We decided not to go down that path. We love optogenetics. It's amazing. But we don't see that as being as near term as building BCI with purely electrical interfaces for a few reasons. One being it requires genetic engineering in the brain. So genetic engineering in humans, one, is a pretty high bar, even beyond the bar for medical devices. And the second would be that your neurons aren't replaced. You have the same number of neurons that you're going to have later in life. So when you start modifying them, you have an even higher bar than you would for other tissues. So that's one of the reasons why we were pretty insistent on an all-electrical interface as opposed to working with some of these other optogenetic or in general, genetic engineering requiring modalities. I think another important thing about why we're using microwires is because they're very robust and they have been around for decades. And so there are a lot of interesting polymer-based flexible electronics that you can use for electrical recording in the brain, but they are not tried and true, if you will. And it's not as obvious that they'll hold up over a long period of time. And those polymer-based solutions, that's sort of like the neural lace that we've heard be popularized by, I think, Elon Musk and Neuralink? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I would say about injectable mesh electrodes is it's a little bit of topological problem to inject a three-dimensional mesh into the brain. Because if you think about it, the brain is a tangle of neurons that looks a little bit like a bramble bush, a very dense bramble bush if you look at it, like, say, under an electron microscope. And so trying to unfold a mesh of electrodes is a little bit like trying to inject a fishnet into a bramble bush and then open up the fishnet without cutting the net or the bramble bush. It's just geometrically challenging to do, to say nothing about the engineering. Yeah, I like that. That's a really good a verbal description in a podcast is great. Mm-hmm. 
Let me take another step back to something you mentioned earlier, which was some of the use cases. So as you were talking about the microwire solution, you feel that that is a more near-term viable solution to start using in clinical settings. What do you see as maybe the first couple of core use cases you think your technology will be used to solve? Well, I think the first and immediate use case will be recording from large numbers of neurons in animal models by researchers to get a better understanding of certain areas of the brain. That's going to happen imminently. We are currently building a system we call the Argo system that we're going to release to a limited number of researchers to in sort of creation to work on several projects. We're also very interested in the possibility of using systems like this for intraoperative recording. So before brain surgery, typically an area will be mapped functionally with what are called depth electrodes, which are effectively microwire electrodes. So if you had a large bundle of microwire electrodes, you could do better mapping prior to brain surgery that could aid in targeting things such as epileptic foci or brain tumors. And so we see that there could be an intermediate application of high bandwidth brain machine interfaces in the operating room. And then obviously the long-term aim is building a brain modem that is implantable for BCI and electroceuticals. And there we think that the first market that could be addressed in the next eight years would be servicing locked-in patients and other forms of paralysis where people can use a high bandwidth BCI to interact fluently with the outside world. I like the way you use the term modem for your product. And when I think about a modem, I think about sort of data transfer rates. And I know we've talked about something, a challenge you've sort of run into there. And so your current product, you have, I believe it's about 65,000 channels, 65,000 microwires you work with right now, and a goal of recording a million neurons. And you run into a significant data challenge with that. Could you tell us a little bit about how you process these massive amounts of data that come off the brain? Yeah. One of the most fundamental aspects of collecting a lot of data from the brain is that digitization costs energy, and so it dissipates a lot of heat. So our current system that can record from up to 65,000 electrodes is about as big as a Nalgene water bottle. And in principle, all of the electronics inside of the system could shrink down onto a chip the size of your thumbnail. But you need a very large device to dissipate all of the heat that is generated when you digitize the raw data flow, because we're currently pulling about 30 gigabits per second off of the system. And so short of making leaps and bounds, innovations in the area of digitization, which huge companies have been putting billions of dollars in for a very long time, you need to be a little bit more clever about how you handle that data when you go to an implantable interface. One of the things that we've realized, and I think others have realized in the field, is that you don't really need to digitize the raw data stream and transmit all of the data that you're collecting from the brain. But if you can be very clever and extract the relevant features of that data, then you can knock down the total data that has to be digitized and transmitted by a factor of several hundred or even a thousand. Yeah, it's an amazing problem to solve. And I'm curious, as you think about scaling up to potentially even have a device with more channels and collecting data from more neurons, 
how do you scale up, I guess, the solution to address that problem, not only on the software side, but also on the hardware side? There's only so much brain matter that you can viably interact with, you know, using the microwire. So how do you think about the scaling challenges for both hardware and software? Yeah. So in some cases, you're looking at recording over a larger area, in which case you might use several modules to record. But then I think there's what you're getting at is at a certain point, there's a limited amount of real estate in the brain devoted to a particular application. And you want to start sampling that denser and denser and getting more and more data out per unit area. And I think there are a few ways to improve here. One of them is to make smaller and smaller and less invasive wires that can be inserted at higher density. Another way is to try to design the wires such that each wire can record with better fidelity from more neurons. I think that there's quite a bit of room for improvement here, and I will be interested to see how far we can push it. And as you scale up on the hardware side, then, is there a software challenge? Can you use the same approach that you mentioned earlier about sort of not digitizing the entire stream, or does the stream eventually get so big that it poses a new challenge? I actually think at a low level, these tricks that we're using scale very well. And when it comes to a lot of people ask about the analysis challenge, how do you analyze all of this data? Well, In our opinion, it's actually easier to analyze more data because it means that you can use simpler linear decoding models rather than having to eke out that last bit of power from a small amount of data. I mean, fundamentally, these decoding problems are statistics problems. And the more samples you have, the more data you have, the better you can do. That makes total sense. And I guess... Maybe two last questions and one more on the data topic, which is data privacy has obviously been a really big topic for reasons not related to BCI recently. But we have had some early discussions, I think, with what do neuroethics look like in the future and how do we make sure that the data that we generate from these devices is sort of safe and used in an ethical way. How are you thinking about that problem from a high level? I think in two separate streams. On one hand, there's the purely technical aspect and the practical aspect of data privacy. And that doesn't worry me very much because if you take something like iPhone-level security, commercially available encryption can be used to protect data streams to the extent that any non-state actor effectively can't break into it. And I think that for... The data streams that we're securing, which would be, for instance, the motor control of an arm for an amputee or the computer control for a paralyzed person, I don't think that the kinds of entities that would have the capability of hacking into that data stream would have any incentive to spend the millions of dollars that would be required to do it. Maybe if one day Dianne Feinstein has a brain-computer interface, we might need to ask some harder questions about this. But I think for now, on a technical side, I feel pretty confident. Then I think there's another side which is that I do think about, which is the legal side. Actually, my concerns, I would say, aren't specific to brain-computer interfaces, but are just general digital health questions and questions about how we interact with computers more generally now. I'll just give you an example. It's clear that you can't be called into court to testify against yourself. You have a right that you don't have to incriminate yourself by recalling your memories from your cortical circuits. 
But what if you had a memory deficit and the only way that you could remember things was to keep a detailed diary, written diary? It's clear that you could be subpoenaed to give up the diary. Similarly, a lot of people now don't remember as much and they store things in their email or on the cloud or on their computer and you can be compelled by subpoena to give up your password. So that's one aspect that I feel with respect to medical devices, how do we understand our data privacy when we're storing intimate information about ourselves on a medical device, whether it's a brain-computer interface or any other connected device that's acting as an extension of our memory or our bodies. I feel that there should be some legal protection there, and I think that this is something that society is going to have to wrap its head around independent of brain-computer interfaces. That is a really interesting question. We have to do some more thinking on that. We've been working on some thoughts on sort of neuroethics that we're hoping to share and publish in the next month or so, but I think that's a great framing of the problems that we face today are sort of in a way just augmented when we have advanced technologies like brain-computer interface or AI or whatever else comes next. We kind of still face the same issues today and the same questions today, so I think that's a really important insight. The last question, Matt, was one that we ask every guest on the show, and that is, it's an easy one. What's your favorite neuroscience-related book that you would recommend everyone in the audience read? Well, I think, I have to admit, I don't read a lot of neuroscience books, but there's one book that I read that has deep implications, I think, for understanding how the brain works, and that is Moonwalking with Einstein. I'm not sure if you've read that. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, by Joshua Four. It's about mnemonics and memory tricks that normal people can do that give them savant-like powers in recalling things. So for instance, you quickly look at a deck of cards and you, within a very short amount of time, can memorize the order of the cards, or you memorize pi out to a thousand digits. These are things that seem like only a person with a specially wired brain would be able to do, but there are tricks that allow you to co-opt your memory circuits in order to store things that you wouldn't normally be very good at storing. And these tricks involve mental imagery and episodic memories. So you can translate numbers into, for instance, faces of people or funny actions that people might do, and then you can tell a story. And people are really good at remembering stories and really good at stringing together episodes and events, and they recall them really well. And so what people get good at doing is taking some domain, like numbers or memorizing cards, moving that problem into a different domain where their brains are really good at working, like, for instance, remembering funny stories with famous people, and then translating it back into the original domain. And it, it just, for people who think about machine learning and think about choosing the right hardware for the right problem, it makes a lot of sense. And I think anyone who's interested in how their brain works and how memory works and how you can co-opt your own memory sort of memory hacking, if, if you will, I think they would find that book really interesting. It's a great recommendation. You can augment yourself without any brain surgery or brain computer interface or anything yeah, else. Yeah. Just, yeah, just with these tricks. Great recommendation. I also have another uh, book recommendation for venture capitalists that I'll share with you. Um, yeah, I really want to know this one. Yeah. <laughs> War and Peace. Have you ever read War and Peace? You know, I haven't read that one. 
Well, I'll tell you, I like it for two reasons. I think it's good for venture capitalists. One is it teaches patience because some of the most significant things take a little bit longer to get through. And War and Peace, I calculated just before we talked, is equivalent of about 13,000 tweets. (laughs) So amazing. You have to be a little bit perseverant, but it's incredibly rewarding. It's probably one of the most significant pieces of literature in the canon of Western literature. And then the second point that I think is really interesting is uh, prior to Tolstoy writing War and Peace, there was a 18th century idea about great men and how great men drive forward history. Very, you know, personality centric, which I think historians and a lot of sociologists have since debunked But I think one of the things that Tolstoy takes apart in War and Peace and is really interesting is how people like Napoleon, how they fit into the context of their environment and how some of the decisions that they make and some of the greatness they achieve make sense and in some cases was the only logical thing that could have happened. I think it's very instructive and very interesting to think about it in terms also of some of the founder culture that we see in Silicon Valley. I've got some homework, I think, to do. And I know it's a long read, too, so it might be a few weekends, but (laughs) I will definitely check that one out. But I recommend it to everyone. It's one of those things that I would say it's a sort of changing book for people who really like books. It's quite significant. Well, cool. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us today. That's all we got. And we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you very much, Doug. Talk to you soon. 